0: We're going to talk today about ways that we get to live now because of what God has done. But I've got a few things to tell you first. Thing number one, I was told that this was casual Sunday. And Chip's over here in a tie and Jason's over there in a tie. So uh, lesson learned, but we're going to be fine. Sue Wright told me that we can call it Jean Sunday. So we're okay. Uh, the second thing is I was going to do a little uh, activity while, while I spoke today, it was going to be very cool. Um, but, but those of you who are in this room know that the boilers down here are out and it's a little chilly. My hands are very cold. I'm just not sure this is going to work. So if the sermon goes really well, we'll be like, that was great. And if it doesn't, we'll be like, it's because she didn't get to do that thing she was going to do. And we'll just blame it on that. Is that okay with everybody? Okay. The first time I preached in a church on a Sunday morning, there was a mass walkout. Uh, Not because of anything I had said. It wasn't that I was spouting heretical theological doctrine from the pulpit. No, this walkout happened on principle because I was a woman and I was going to be preaching on a Sunday morning. The man who led the walkout, his name was Rick. And Rick was actually a really nice guy. he was really kind. He was one of the deacons at our church, and he was the well-loved Sunday school teacher of our largest Sunday school class. It was our senior adults class, and they had about 45 or 50 people in there on a regular Sunday morning. So we had an interim pastor at the time. So the interim pastor stands up the week before and announces that I will be preaching, and some members of the congregation clapped because they were kind and they were excited. And so Rick was A little concerned about this so he set up a meeting with the interim pastor and they met the saturday before i was going to preach and they met for like three hours um and rick said i just want you to know that i think that what's about to happen is unbiblical and so my wife and i will be leaving the church so he and the pastor talked about it for a long time and the meeting ended amicably they hugged at the end um it was sad but it but it was respectful it was peaceful But what none of us knew was that Rick was going to come to church the next morning and get up in front of his very devoted Sunday school class and say, what's about to happen in this church is unbiblical and God is going to punish us for what's going on. And as a result, my wife and I are leaving and I want all of you to come with me. And most of them did. And they got up and they walked out in between the Sunday school hour and the church service hour. And in the aftermath of that event, there was an older woman in our church named Bondred. And Bondred said, Andrea, you just got to grace em. And I said, Bondred, I don't know what that means. <laughs> she said, well, you grace them. Grace is when you give someone what they don't deserve. So you pray for them and you grace them as you pray. You pray for good things for them. You pray for blessings. You pray that their marriage would be happy, that their lives would be filled with joy. You grace them. This was an interesting definition of grace for me. I'd never heard that before, that grace is giving somebody something that they don't deserve. I've heard it a thousand times since. It's quite popular now where they say like, mercy is not giving us what we do deserve and grace is giving us what we don't deserve. I see it on plaques. I see it on home decor decorations. I see this all over the place now. But at the time, that definition was new to me. And I feel like we talk about grace a lot that way especially at church when we're talking about sin we kind of treat grace as if it's a as if it's a commodity as if it's a trade-off for sin you sin god gives us grace it's like a one for one it's almost transactional and i don't know if you can tell in how i'm talking but i just don't really like that very much but we'll talk about that again in a second When I was in seminary, the second time here in the Kansas City area, I took theology from Dr. Molly Marshall, who some of you may be familiar with since she's kind of local to this area. And Dr. Marshall was the president of our seminary at the time, but she's also a theologian, and she specialized or focused in uh, theology of the Holy Spirit, a Trinitarian theology. And she would always tell us that none of us have a good Trinitarian theology. And she would say, for example, for example, We always talk about how people are made in the image of God, in the Imago Dei. But if we had a good Trinitarian theology, we would instead say that we were made in the Imago Trinitas, the image of the Trinity. I think a lot of our images, whether we're made in the Imago Dei or the Imago Trinitas, or any other image that we're in, right now, in this moment, are kind of under attack. Because in this moment, it's January of a new year. And what do we always hear about any of the images that we hold in January of a new year? Well, they're not good enough. Whether it's the beauty industry or the diet industry or the fitness industry or the personal finance industry. All these people want us to make a new us in a new year, right? New year, new you. Whatever image you hold, it's not good enough and we have ways that it can be better. It's just being here in January talking about being made in the image of God. I think about that. But it also makes me think about another story. And I ran this story by Chip and Katie Joe earlier because I just wasn't sure if I was going to tell it. They gave me approval. So I'm going to tell you what happened. And I'm going to tell it to you real, just straight up. Okay, so... I was in seminary the first time, it gets confusing, in California, and a friend and I were in the library studying for our finals. I think we were writing a paper, and it was mid-December, so all of the new year, new you stuff had already started, because it was about to be January, and I had gone down to a different floor of the library to get a book that I needed for my paper, and I came back up, and I sat back down, and about 30 seconds or so after I'd sat back down, a man walked up to me and asked me if he could see me in the stairwell because he wanted to talk to me, but he didn't want to disturb all of the other people that were studying. So he had dark skin and a bright colored shirt on and a really thick African accent. We were in an intercultural seminary, and I was like, okay, yeah, sure, well, let's go. So we go out into the hallway, and he says, I was on that other floor, and I saw you walk down to get this book, and I just thought— that you were the most beautiful woman that I had ever seen in my life. I was just stunned walking you walk by, and I just knew that I had to come meet you. I just had to come find you and introduce myself. And so I followed you to your seat. was <laughs> like, okay. So in, in this moment, I'm going, first of all, I was already married, but I was going, wow, I'm in, incredibly flattered. And then he said, see, I'm from Africa, and we are like real women, <laughs> I went, okay, I'm simultaneously flattered and kind of insulted at the same time. This is a very interesting, very surreal feeling for me in this moment. Uh, But it just makes me think when we talk about images, how they're different depending on where we are and when we are. I tell you what, the next time I saw, a you know, lose weight in the new year, I thought, well, in Africa, some people think I'm just fine, (laughs) It's funny how any other image that we hold, it can change depending on where we are, what time it is, what situation it is, any other image that we're trying to live up to or live into, it's flexible, it can falter. The only image that keeps us stable, the only image that keeps us rooted is the one in which we were created, the Imago Trinitas. With every other image that we try to live into, we could fail. We could falter. We could try to live up to something, and we could fall short, and it might just not work. And that goes with others, too, in their relationships with us. That's when my friend Bondred would say, well, that's when we got to grace them, when they fall short. Maybe she would say, well, that's when God graces us, too. When we try to live up to a mark, and we fail, and we miss. So we need grace. It's very transactional. My failing for God's grace. And I just don't think this definition is adequate anymore. When we treat grace this way, it's as if it's transactional, as if it's a trade for sin or a commodity. Then that kind of assumes that grace was invented just to deal with sin. Like we had this fall and God went, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Oh, I need a plan B. I guess I'll make grace. And that's what we'll do. That's how we'll cover sin. But we know that that doesn't sit right, right? We know that that's not it. We know that grace is a part of the character of God. So there's a disconnect here, and I can see Dr. Marshall going, ah, it's because you have a bad Trinitarian theology. I've been reading about grace lately from these two pastors named Ben Sternke and Matt Tebbe, and they offer what they call a rebranding of grace, And what they say is that grace is not a commodity. It's not a trade for sin. It's more than that because grace is the giving of God's self. God, giving of God's self in relationship. And if we had a good Trinitarian theology, we would know that this happens within that Trinitarian relationship, the giving of God's self. And that's been happening since before time began and definitely since before sin began. And because God is incredible and God loves us, God invites us into that relationship too and God offers us God's self in relationship. And they say this is grace, God's relational presence that God offers us. That is grace. They say grace is not a commodity. Grace is communion with God. Grace is not a commodity. Grace is communion, God's relational presence. And we experience this relational presence quite literally when Jesus was born, and we still experience it now through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's all very Trinitarian. Dr. Marshall would be very happy about this. But when we live into this grace when we live in this communion this relational presence of god we start to be marked by all of that mean all that that means and i want to pause here for a second because what we're talking about is god's presence with us at all times god's giving of god's self in relationship to us and for some of us that might not be an exciting thing because some of us may think of god as this finger-wagging parent who's just up there talking about all the things we don't do right or all the things we do wrong Sometimes I think we think of God as like the police officer who's just parked, you know, a little off the street, just waiting to catch somebody doing something wrong. And that's what we think of when we think of, oh, good, well, God's presence is with us all the time, just waiting to snap me right up, waiting to get me for something that I've done. But that's when we need to remember these verses that Sophie, thank you, Sophie, for reading them, that Sophie read earlier. Because these verses from Ephesians 1 talk about all of the blessings that we have because of Christ. All of the things that God thinks of us. And it says multiple times in that passage that God delights in us. When we talk about the relational capacity of God, God wants to be joined to us. God wants to be in communion with us. I really love the way they put this in the message version of the Bible. So I'm going to give you just a few snippets to support what Sophie said. Here's, what the, here's how the message says some of those same, same things. Long before God laid down earth's foundations, God had settled on us as the focus of love. Long, long ago, God decided to adopt us into the family through Jesus. And what pleasure God took in planning this. God wanted us to enter into the celebration of the lavish gift giving that God planned to give to us by the hand of Jesus. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we are a free people, free of penalties and punishments, chalked up by all our misdeeds, and not just barely free, but abundantly free. In Christ we find out who we are and what we are living for. This is the message translation of those same verses in Ephesians one that we read earlier. And I just love the whole atmosphere of these verses. It's joy and it's celebration. And it's all about God being joyful about us, delighting in us, celebrating us. This grace of God, God's giving God's self to us, delights God to be joined with us, to be connected daily with us. This makes God happy. Not a finger-wagging parent, not a waiting police officer. It's a desire of God to connect with us. The grace of God says, I'm here, and I see you, and I love you exactly as you are. No buts, because we're made in the Imago Trinitas, and we are loved because of it. A few years ago, I was at Christmas with my family and I was struggling. We had little kids. My sister and her family were there and they had little kids and there was a lot of noise. And then my mom was asking me all these questions and I didn't know how to answer. And I was starting to like feel myself get stressed out. And my sister came up to me and I'm always suspicious when that happens because my sister and I are completely different people. We can, we can have a happy, joyful celebration for about a day, and then we start fighting with one another. Sometimes we can make it to three. Usually it only happens at two, but we're just so very different. And so she starts walking up to me when I can tell I'm getting a little anxious, and I'm like, oh, this isn't going to go good. And she goes, Andrea, we're going to the playground, and we're taking your kids. And I said, oh, I don't want to go to the playground. I need space. I'm having a hard time. And she said, yeah, no, you're not invited to the playground. <laughs> you get to stay here. You get to have your space. We're going to take your kids. And I was like, "Okay, <laughs> that sounds great. I'm totally on board with this." So when they got back, I had had my time, I'd had my moments, I had calmed down, and I pulled Jennifer aside to say, "Hey, that was that was really kind of you. I really needed that. Thank you so much." And she goes, "Yeah, um, I know you needed that. You don't handle stress well." And I thought I'd I'd be able to help you. And I said, "What do you mean I don't handle stress well?" I'm fine. I can't believe you said that to me. (laughs) But as I have contemplated that over the last few years, I realized that she was right, that I don't handle stress well. And when she said that, she wasn't saying it out of judgment. She wasn't condemning me or ridiculing me. She was saying, I know you and I see you and I wanted to help you. Because she said that for the last few years, I've actually started working on how I handle stress. (laughs) Because she was right. And there has been a change in me because of that. And that was grace. She didn't wait for me to get my stress together. She was still there. She didn't say, you know what, I'll hang out with you again at Christmas when you figure this stuff out. She just loved me. And she knew me. That's what this connecting, communing grace of God does. That's what the relational presence of God is. It doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. It doesn't mean that we have to get our stuff together. In fact, what it means is that God is just with us exactly where we are, exactly as we are. And as we commune with God, we may start to change. Things may start to work on us. We may learn to handle our stress better, for example. When we live in God's grace, our our relationship with God is marked more by connection and joy and freedom. And not just our relationship with God, but our relationship with everybody else too. So rather than finding our security in an image that may be changing across cultures or nations or times, rather than finding our security or our confidence in our success or our performance or our likability or what we look like on the outside— We can find our security and our confidence in who God says we are, in our belovedness, in the fact that we were made in God's image. That very first Sunday that I preached, the Sunday of the walkout, it was one of the most hurtful things I've experienced in my entire life. Um, And it made me question. This happened in between the service. So I still had like 25, 30 minutes before I was supposed to get up and preach this sermon. So I was going, Okay, what am I supposed to do? Maybe I just shouldn't preach. Maybe I, maybe I should apologize. Maybe we should just not have a sermon. Why don't these people like me? What can I do to get them to come back to church? And I was filled with all of this fear. Like, what, am I, what if I'm gonna get fired? What if they decide that all those people are more important than having me on staff and this is gonna be my last Sunday? And there was so much going on in me. And I stood up to preach that sermon. And I will tell you, I don't remember what I preached about. I don't remember how it went, I don't remember any of the feedback I got, but I do remember being overcome with this presence of God in the midst of this sermon, and I was filled with like a peace and a joy. I felt free for the first time, not just free to be me, but free to do what I felt like God had called me to do. And none of that other stuff for just that moment, none of the rest of it mattered because I was secure in that moment in who God said I was and what God had called me to do. That's the relational presence of God. That is grace. Not a commodity, but communion. And the good news for all of us is that just wasn't a one-time situation that just happened to me. That's what God offers all of us all the time. God's relational presence of communion. Grace in person in Jesus Christ and through Jesus who we get to be because of him. Not a commodity, but communion.